everyone. This is Georgia welcoming you back to Safety. We had to take a little break. Well, okay, a really long break. Thanks, COVID. But we are back. Today, we have a very special podcast for you. It's always a season for giving. And today, we want to talk about giving the ultimate gift. That's the gift of life. Or in other words, organ donation. Let's face it, no one wants to think about dying, and it can be really uncomfortable to talk about what happens to your body after you die. The fact is that accidents happen. Tragedy can strike when you least expect it, just like what happened to Rachel, who's the reason this podcast exists. And it's during the unexpected time of tragedy that you may come face-to-face with organ donation. You may have lots of questions related to donating an organ, or maybe you've never even really given it much thought. To help unpack this, we have some very special guests. First of all, we have Jack here to chat with a group of students about their questions and concerns regarding donation. And then we have our great team of Mythbusters who are going to answer those questions and dispel any and all rumors about the organ donation process. We're also going to meet a courageous organ donor who gave a kidney to help a stranger and an organ recipient who's very special to safety. So let's get started. We're going to begin with Jack, our panel of students, and the organ donation Mythbusters team. Hi everyone, my name's Jack. I'm a medical student at the Indiana University School of Medicine and I'll be your host today. Uh, I'd like to start this panel off on organ donation by having everybody introduce themselves. Hello, my name is Andy and I'm a former teacher, but now I'm the education specialist for Indiana Donor Network. Hi, I'm Kristen. I am a registered nurse and I also work for Indiana Donor Network. Hey, I'm Colin. Uh, I'm a medical student at Indiana University School of Medicine. Hi, my name is Michael. I'm a sophomore at the University of Notre Dame. Hi, my name is Emily, and I'm a sophomore at Marion University. Hi, everyone. I'm Lucy, and I'm a senior at Garen Catholic High School. Hey, everyone. I'm Samantha, and I'm a senior at Carmel High School. Well, it's a pleasure to meet everybody. I'm so happy you're here. Thanks so much for coming. I'd like to start things off by just asking you an easy question. Have you guys thought much about organ donation? I would have to say I haven't thought of it probably enough. I always fall into that idea that a lot of young people have that they're invincible and that they don't even have to think about it because it's not going to happen. Yeah, I agree with Sam. I feel like it's not like a daily conversation that we talk about all the time. So just kind of not thinking about it just makes it not much of a topic that I occur regularly. Yeah. I'd have to say I'm in the same boat as Samantha and Lucy where I haven't really seriously considered it or talked about it. Yeah, so I guess I'm just the black sheep of the group here because I've talked about it a bit with my family just because I have some relatives in the medical field. And we've talked about how if uh, we pass away early or unexpectedly, uh, how we can still be able to help other people even after we've passed away. Yeah, and uh, I was probably like most of you prior to medical school, I didn't think about it that much. But being in the hospital more, it's, it's something that definitely crosses your mind. And I think, uh, you know, Colin's probably a better person than I have. We're both in the same year of medical school, but I still haven't thought about it that much. Um, (laughs) I think the last time I probably thought about it before this podcast was when I got my driver's license when I was young. I think um, I definitely have trouble planning a few days in advance, let alone for, you know, a a tragic event that happens at some point in the future. So I think it can be tough to, to think about these things, but I'm glad we're coming together and talking about it today. Do you guys have any concerns about organ donation? What would be a reason that you wouldn't want to check that box on your driver's license to become a donor. I would say just because I'm younger, that all of that is like my parents' responsibility. Like if I do get in a car crash, they can decide what organs and hopefully that they know I want to be an organ donor. But once I turn 18, I will have to decide that for myself. The idea of the responsibility is quite concerning. 
Yeah, I would agree. Even as someone who's over 18, but still mainly living at home, I'd hope that my parents would handle that and that that would be taken care of responsibly. Yeah. Even though I'm very open to organ donation, I still from time to time have my reservations because if I passed away early, I'd want my family to be able to have open casket so they could just get some closure. And so that's one thing that's You know, I think about that whenever I have to go and renew my driver's license and decide whether or not I want to stay an organ donor. Yeah, I know personally that people believe that if you're an organ donor, people aren't going to try as hard to save you. Uh, That's honestly kind of a hard question for me to answer, not knowing personally. Yeah, Colin, I think that's a great question. And that is why we have our Mythbusters (laughs) panel here to help us out. So Kristen and Andy, if you could help out my friend Colin here with that question, that'd be great. Absolutely. And this is one that we hear a lot. So I'm glad you brought it up. In order for you to even be an organ donor, your organs have to be healthy. They have to be perfused. So they have to have that blood flow. So if a tragedy happens, those first responders that arrive to the scene, they're not looking at your license. They don't know if you're an organ donor. They don't care. They want to save you. And so your organs have to be aggressively treated in order to transplant those. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that does. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, was just going to add on that Indiana Donor Network, uh, we are a hospital service. So we work with the hospital, but we are completely delineated. We are not located in the hospital. Nurses, doctors, they call us when brain death has been triggered because we are the only ones that are looking up a registered donor in the registry. And we keep us, you know, delineated even though We are partners to the hospital because we certainly want hospitals to save lives. But in the case that that cannot happen, then that's when we need to do our job to then see if those organs can be utilized and transplanted. So, Andy, are you saying that, you know, if I had to go to the hospital, the doctor who's taking care of me doesn't even know if I'm a donor? Is that correct? Exactly. That even if you have that heart on your driver's license, they can't even go by that heart. Because think about it this way. I could register to be an organ donor at the BMV. I could go directly home, get online at donatelifeindiana.org and remove my name. The heart's still going to be on my driver's license, but I'm now unregistered. So that's just a second way that we share with the community that the heart is really more of a value for you and your family to say, hey, I am a registered organ donor and I am proud to be able to help people. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. I know personally for me, it would seem like the donor network and the hospital should be linked, but it's great that you guys are separate so that the doctors can focus on um, saving their patients and you guys can focus on finding great matches so that you can give the gift of life to other people. And that's helpful to respond to people who ask that question that the two processes are separate. Uh, I think that's the concern is that people think, you know, they're in cahoots with each other. That's that's dangerous, but thank you. You're welcome. I'm going to turn this back to our student panelists now. I was wondering if you guys have ever talked to your family about organ donation. Do they know your wishes? Um, Do you know if they want to be donors themselves? Um, I personally have lightheartedly, not in a serious sense, talked to both my parents about organ donation And in the event that something tragic were to happen, what I would want to happen to my body and to my organs. And they've kind of also led on to know like what I should do in the event that they tragically pass away as well. I think that's a tough one for parents to talk about their kids, right? Because they have to just imagine, you know, a horrific tragedy happening to their kids. And I think that can be a really tough conversation to have. But I think it's a really good conversation to have. 
Yeah, I've also had this conversation with my family and we've talked about it like seriously, but also we we kind of joke a bit. We're like, well, I'm not going to be using those organs where I'm going. So like, I don't really need them. <laughs> um, but like there's truth in jest, so might as well give them to people who can still use them. Right. Yeah. Along with Emily and Michael, um, my family have definitely talked about it in a lighthearted sense, but I think that they know that I want to be a donor. And I know that especially for my mom, she um, has worked in the pediatric ICU for over 25 years. Um, and she's seen all the good that can come from being a donor. So I think my family has a, a little bit of an insight on the process behind it as well. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. I feel like a lot of people's concerns about organ donation just come from not really having an idea of what's going on. And so I think it's great that you guys are asking these questions. If I really want to be an organ donor in the event that something bad happens to me, how can I be sure that I'm considered a registered organ donor? So that's a great question, and um, I often ask the question to the community, do you know the three ways to actually become a registered organ donor? You guys have talked a lot about registering or checking the box at the BMV. That is one way to be certain, but the other two ways is, uh, I mentioned it earlier, donatelifeindiana.org, and then the third way is we can nationally sign up at registerme.org, which is also on our iPhone health app. So Android is not there yet, but the iPhone does certainly allow you to register from the heart health app. So the second piece of that is definitely having the conversation with your family, letting them know that it is what you want to do, especially if you are under 18 years of age, because legally it is still your family or next of kin's decision until you turn 18. I had a question about like donor status. Uh, is it a you know black and white thing? Either you're a donor or you're not. Are there partial donor statuses or can you talk a little bit about that? That's a great question, Colin. Do you guys have an answer for us on the uh, Mythbusters panel over there? Yeah, it's pretty much you are either a registered or you signed up to be an organ donor or you are not. You do, though, in fact, have to sign up. Any other questions? In regards to what you just said about being a donor and whether you're black and white registered or not, can you verbally express your donor desires or do you strictly have to be like contractually written as registered? I would say the easiest of the process is to be signed up. Because what can happen is if you have two family members, let's say a mother and a father at the hospital, and one says, no, I don't want their organs to be donated for transplantation, and then you've got the mother saying, yes, I do, then you've got really a fault line there. And so signing up and having the discussion, I think, is the very best thing. But if you didn't register to be a donor and you did verbally talk to your family, the hospital can still move forward with organ donation as long as the family says, yes, we've had the discussion. You mentioned a national database. Does that mean that if I am only registered in Indiana, I can only donate my organs in Indiana? If I move states, is it transfer? Very good question. So there are, you know, over 110,000 people waiting on this national transplant waiting list. We never know when an organ donor is going to become available, except for living donors. So when we think about donating, those people that are waiting, typically there is going to be a blood match. And so the donor and the recipient have to have the same blood type. But you also move up the wait list. Younger people tend to move up. And then also the severity of the illness and then the size of the organ. So proximity is going to come into play. So your organs 
do not necessarily stay in Indiana. However, if there is somebody more severe in Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, that organ could potentially go to them as long as surgeons know that they would make it through the surgery. They want to make sure that the person on the wait list is strong enough, healthy enough. Again, too, you got to think about how long the organs can be outside the body. The kidneys have around 72 hours, so a kidney can be flown all across the wow. United States. Wow. But the heart, the lungs, and the small intestines can only be out of the body for four to six hours before they need to be transplanted. So typically those organs are going to stay in close proximity to your state. Okay. But another type of donation, you know, we say an organ donor can save and heal up to 83 lives. Pretty powerful number, right? So how do we get the 83? Well, um, not only can we donate our organs, but we can donate up to 75 tissues to heal lives. So think about skin grafts, ligaments, tendons, veins. These types of things can go and heal different patients. Good question. That's fascinating. There are certainly a lot of moving parts there that I can't even begin to comprehend. Um, (laughs) But it's interesting to hear that, you know, even though you might sign up through Indiana, your body parts can be used all across the country, which I think is that's really interesting. Since we're on the topic about kind of the organ donation process, do you guys have any specific questions about the organ donation process? I feel like I have a lot of questions because I know that, you know, if my organs are to be used, I know that they're going to go to a good purpose, but I have kind of no idea how we get from A to B there. So I was just wondering if you guys have any thoughts about that. Yeah, although it's kind of an odd question, how do they get the organs out? Sure. So Indiana Donor Network has organ recovery coordinators. So they go to the hospitals um, when we have a donor patient and they coordinate the OR time. So scheduling when the recovery happens, they um, coordinate that with all of the transplant centers that have accepted one of the organs for their recipients. So once they go to OR, um, we take the patient down to the OR on the ventilator And once everybody is ready, we make everybody stop what they're doing. Uh, We read a moment of silence. I actually love that we do this. And it's usually something that the family has written about that loved one. And why I find them so, so great is because I get to know that patient a little bit. Those surgeons get to know that patient a little bit, the, the OR staff. So it's just a way to honor that hero. So once we are ready, everyone just begins. We make an incision. It's just one incision. Um, And then once we are ready to actually recover the organs, we start what's called preservation solution. And it's just what it sounds like. It preserves the organs from the time the blood flow stops from the donor to the time that that organ can be transplanted to the recipient. Wow, that's amazing. It's nice to hear you talk about the organ donor as a, a hero. I feel like it can be easy to think about this process as very impersonable, um, but it sounds like you guys do a great job of remembering the person and honoring them throughout the process. Um, going along with that, after an organ donation, what will happen to the rest of my body? So we've talked a little bit about an open casket funeral, which is sometimes what a family chooses to do or what the organ donor hero chooses to do. Certainly, an organ donor hero can still have an open casket funeral. Also, some heroes decide they want to be cremated. That can certainly happen after organ and tissue donation. I had a, just a small question. Earlier, our team of Mythbusters answered the question saying that, yes, you can still have an open casket. I was just wondering, like, specifically, because obviously you mentioned tissue donation when it comes to the eyes. Would that 
affect the ability to have an open casket with the eyes at all? Or? So actually, they are only taking the small transparent lens that covers your eyes, which is the cornea. So the cornea has no color. It is not the iris. And so it's a small, thin film that helps us to see. So when the cornea is removed and then the eyes would be closed at the funeral, but no organ or tissue donation would not affect that. As Kristen talked earlier about the moment of silence, I will tell you an organ donor in the operating room is a hero and they are treated with the ultimate respect. And therefore, when they do go on to the funeral home, we want to make certain that that can still happen for the family. Kind of a follow-up to that, let's say I want to be an organ donor, but for whatever reason, when I pass, my organs are non-viable. I would like them to go towards medical education or scientific inquiry. Can I make that known? Yes, you absolutely can. In fact, when they are testing the organ donor hero on the ventilator at the hospital, you know, the ORCs have made it clear that those organs are not going to be viable or not going to be able to be matched that person can then go on to donate to science still. Absolutely. Great question. I had a similar question just because you mentioned all these tissues and organs that can obviously go to save lives. And obviously those need to still be living when they're extracted. I was just wondering, can uh, organ donors still feel pain? So no, they can't. Um, Straight answer. (laughs) (laughs) But just to kind of explain why. So I just want to say brain death is not a coma. Brain death is death. So um, when you have a brain injury, um, brain death is when there's an irreversible damage to the brain. You guys know your brain regulates everything. It controls everything in your body. And so when there's no blood flow to the brain, there's no brain function. So you won't feel pain. Awesome. If I wanted to donate a kidney right now to save someone's life, can I give it to someone who's not a relative? So yes, just like we can donate blood and bone marrow while we're still alive, we actually can be an organ donor, not all of our organs. We can only donate one full kidney, or we can donate a partial liver while still living. And uh, pretty special about the liver, it's like a lizard's tail. It will grow (laughs) back. It will regenerate through tissue regeneration. But Speaking on behalf of can you donate to somebody you do not know, absolutely. Now, they are going to do testing on the recipient and the donor. They do want to, you know, we're never going to have a perfect match. They are going to do blood testing. They're going to take a look at antibodies. They're going to test the tissues around the organ. They're going to test the size of the organ. They want to make certain that it will fit. But, you know, we have had a 24-year-old donor be able to donate to a two-year-old. And certainly, I said it before, organ donation does not discriminate. We can donate to, um, a female can donate to a male. We can donate to any race or gender. So, yes, and Selena Gomez, we all know her. (laughs) Uh, Selena Gomez has lupus and she received a kidney from her very best friend. Now that's a darn good best friend. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we just happen to have someone here who has some firsthand experience with living donation. Jan, do you wanna tell us about your story? Sure, my recipient's name is Emma. I met her about 15 years ago. I had gone to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and I worked in a medical shelter and she was one of my patients. And 
Emma has had a pretty difficult life. She had a history of high blood pressure. And after Katrina, when the levees broke, their house filled with water in about 20 minutes. And she and her husband were trapped in their attic for three days before they were rescued by boat. And they were taken from there to a bridge overpass where they spent another couple days. And so she was without her blood pressure medicine that entire time. So she was brought to the hospital that I was working at. And over the course of a week or so, we were getting people relocated and helping them find transportation to get out of there. And after she had been there for about a week, we had her blood pressure stabilized and she was gonna have to go to the general shelter. And I remember in my naivete asking her, you know, what can we do? How can we get you out of here? And what resources do you have? And she said, do you not understand? I have no resources. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I had no idea what that could be like. She's lost three children, a husband. She lost everything that she owned. And so after that experience, we kept in touch and just bonded. And because of her high blood pressure, her kidneys eventually failed. And I can't really remember consciously thinking I need to give her a kidney. But when I knew that she was in failure and had to go on dialysis, I said, I'll be tested. And it had to be divine intervention because there's no reason that we're unrelated, we're different blood types, we're different races. We, there is no connection except 15 years ago, God put us in the same room. And that's, that's how it happened. That's really, truly amazing. Do, do you feel any different now? I don't. The only thing, it was a short hospital stay. It, the recovery was really quick, and I cannot take non-steroidals now. That is the only thing that really has changed in my life. And how's Emma doing? Emma is awesome. Right. Um, she is doing great. She uh, takes a few meds, some anti-rejection drugs, and her blood pressure is still a little up and down, but she really struggled with being on dialysis. She was on dialysis for about a year before we were able to do the transplant, so she is a pretty happy camper. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being Uh a living donor. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Truly, really is amazing. Um, now let's turn back to our panel with a few more questions. Yeah, I was just wondering if you guys had any more questions to ask. I know I have one question on my mind that's kind of a weird one that I feel like I have this unique opportunity to ask our panelists about, but uh, I'll save that unless you guys have any other questions you want to ask. My question is probably 
odd as well. I always hear these stories about people who get organ donations and start like adopting traits that say that <laughs> the person they got the organ from was in love with chocolate and they don't like <laughs> chocolate, but once they get the organ, they cannot get enough of eating chocolate. I just wanted to know if there's actually like really fact behind that or if it's just coincidence. Your question's very good. So thank you for asking that. I promise it gets asked all the time in the community. If we're looking at factual information, truly the recipient is not going to take on the donor hero's characteristics, physical or emotional. But what I will say is recipients do tend to say that. You know, um, we have a male recipient who received a female's liver, and he said, I never, ever used to cry, and my wife always said I wasn't emotional. And he said, and he goes, all of a sudden now I'm watching Hallmark Christmas movies. <laughs> and he says, I'm crying all the time now. Um, so, you know, on the fact side, you know, they don't realistically take those on, but we hear recipients saying it. Again, we have another male that received a female's heart, and um, his wife said he never cared about matching his outfits or his shoes, <laughs> and now he has 50 pairs of shoes. What's going on? So um, very good question, though. <laughs> Maybe some of our men just need a, an excuse to you know, express themselves a little bit. More <laughs> I love that. Yes. <laughs> well, I had kind of a weird question to ask, just a curiosity. If, let's say, for whatever reason, my heart needs to be donated and it's getting transported somewhere, I remember you said something about four to six hours at that time. Let's say it has to go to um, Fort Wayne or something, two hours away from Indianapolis. Is the heart beating that entire time, or is it put to sleep in the transport process and then woken back up? So, great question. After we recover the organs, we immediately put them on ice. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, you know, that's what they show in the movies. That one part in the in the shows, in the movies, <laughs> is true. So they put it in a cooler. Okay. And then they um, take it to wherever the recipient okay. is. I feel like I remember a Seinfeld episode where there's a, a frozen heart being transported, and I think it's beating the entire time, so I had to ask. <laughs> Any other questions from our uh, panelists? Yeah, I have one. So if I choose to be an organ donor, will my family ever get to meet the people um, who received my organs? In fact, we happen to have a special guest that may be able to address that concern. I want to introduce you guys to Nick. He is the recipient of a kidney from Rachel, the very person for whom this podcast exists. So Nick, what happened to your kidneys that made you need a transplant? I have a, a weird disease that is pretty much genetic. Okay. Um, and they found out when I was 12 years old. What was it like to meet your donor family? That was pretty shocking. I met Angie through emails and Rick. I'll tell you what, how I did that. I was on TV here in Detroit, Michigan, doing the volunteer for organ donation. I guess Rick saw that and uh, emailed Amy Andrews, who's the anchor, and it got to me through my Wayne State email here in Detroit. And that was pretty shocking, honestly. Yeah, it sounds like a crazy story. You're just kind of out there doing your uh, your normal stuff, and then all of a sudden you get, you know, a kind of a life-changing email. Right. Do you mind telling us a little bit kind of about your life before you got your transplant? I was on dialysis for three years. I had a lot of problems with dialysis. I had fluid in my lungs with infections. Uh, wow. I found out about home hemodialysis. 
that is when you can do hemodialysis, the blood dialysis here at, here at home. I had to get trained for that. You do that more, five days out of the week for about four hours. Wow, that's a lot of time. Yeah. And in that time, I started going back to school at Wayne State University in Detroit. I was doing school at part-time at Wayne State University. One day I get dialysis and go to school. It was tough, but you know, you gotta get through things, uh, you know, life and doing really well. So Nick, it sounds like, you know, before your uh, transplant, you were really having a hard time. It sounds like for a lot of people, they may not know how long dialysis can take every day. It's almost like having a, a full-time job. And then at the same time you were, you know, trying to be the best student you can be. And that's really challenging. So I think it's really admirable what you were doing. Kind of going forward a little bit, how was the surgery for you? Did you feel like it was hard? Was it painful? What was the recovery like? It was actually 10 hours in the surgery. Wow. It was a little painful. I think I remember, but it wasn't that bad, honestly. Okay. Mm -hmm. How long were you in the hospital uh, after you had the transplant? I think it was only about a week. Wow. Uh So how do you feel now having had the transplant, having had some time to kind of heal afterwards? I feel really good. That's the best health I've ever been in. I have lots and lots of energy. I'm 42 right now, Mm -hmm. but I don't feel like I'm 42 years old, honestly. I feel like I'm in my 20s. That's awesome to hear. I do, well, mostly 15 to 20 mile bike rides when it's nice. It sounds like this transplant really made a huge impact for you. And it sounds like it's enabled you to kind of do the things in your life that, you know, you want to do and that, yeah, you know, you deserve to do even with your complicated genetic condition. What are some other ways your life has kind of changed since this transplant? I do volunteer work for the National Kidney Foundation. I do the kidney walk here in Detroit, raising money for kidney awareness. Mm -hmm. I like to do something every time a kidney anniversary comes up. Every time an anniversary came up, I would do a donor table trying to register organ donation. Here in Michigan, they call it a Gift of Life Campus Challenge. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about that. Gift of Life Campus Challenge is a group there that tries to register as most new organ donors as possible. And this year, it starts on January 21st to February 20th. And we... At Wayne State have won for the last nine years. Wow. Last year, I think it was like, what, 300 some donors in about a month. I also do what's called the Transplant Games. They volunteer with athletic competitions and also I think it's trivia as well. And that's being done hopefully in July in New Jersey. So tell me a little bit more about the Transplant Games. Is that kind of like the Olympics or, you know, what's going on there? I haven't heard about that myself personally. Sure. It's kind of like the Olympics. I entered to be in a basketball, tennis, and bicycling. I like tennis and bicycling the most. Uh, also trivia. They have medals. You know, I've done the bicycling uh, uh, event back in 2016, which it was in Cleveland. Nick, uh, this is kind of a random question, but um, have you picked up any new habits since your uh, transplant? I'm more talkative with the public. Other than that, I don't think so. Any new foods that you like? No, no (laughs) new foods. (laughs) I had to ask. All right, well, thank you so much to Nick for sharing your uh, really inspiring story about what it means to be a donor recipient. No problem. 
And also thanks to our panel and our team of Mythbusters here to uh, help me kind of walk through some of these concepts. I feel like I learned a lot um, about kind of what it means to be a donor recipient, um, what it means to be an organ donor, um, a lot of the nitty gritty details about that. And then now, actually, we have one more guest I'd like uh, you guys to hear from, uh, who is Taylor. Um, and she's kind of going to tell us a story about what it means to be uh, a donor family member. Taylor, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so good to have you here. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I've been working with uh, Indiana Donor Network now for uh, four, going on five years. It's crazy it's been that long. Um, I'm a marketing program specialist. I run our Driven to Save Lives um, program, which is actually in honor of uh, my brother, Brian Clawson. He was a race car driver, and um, he died in a racing accident back in August of 2016, and through that became an organ donor. And so it's something that's you know, I'm really passionate about, um, you know, our family never really talked about donation. It wasn't something that we ever really even thought we would have to deal with. Um, but the, the cards that we were dealt, you know, forced us to have that conversation. And, um, so here I am now, uh, you know, working to honor my brother every day. Wow. That is a, um, a very touching story. And it's, um, it's uh, really encouraging to hear how you, you know, took that tragedy that you experienced and have turned it into something positive, um, with the work that you do. Yeah, you know, it's um, not every day that you go through something so terrible and something that comes from that is, is hope and, and light. And I think it was one of the things that while we were waiting in the hospital for Brian to go to basically say our final goodbyes, it was my dad who kind of spoke up and said, you know, I don't know if you guys realize this right now, but as we're saying goodbye to Brian, there's five other families out there that are, are getting a second chance with their loved one. And so to be able to, you know, honor my brother like this every day is, is incredible. And, you know, if it weren't for organ donation, I wouldn't have had that chance. And I don't think that I would be the same person that I am, you know, today. So, Taylor, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that kind of period you were talking about where you guys were making decisions um, about your loved one, about, you know, the, the whole organ donation process. Yeah, you know, um, Brian was a registered donor, so um, we were fortunate enough that, you know, he made that decision when he got his driver's license at 16. We didn't know that he had made that decision, though, and um, it kind of caught us off guard. But, you know, they told us that we would have to be in the hospital for about 72 hours just because that's how long it takes to do, you know, match and all of that stuff, um, get everybody in for the, the surgeries and recoveries and all that. And I wasn't really sure how I was going to handle that. I, you know, to sit in a hospital room and look at your loved one and they're not smiling, they're not laughing. Brian, you know, he was a very jovial person, always had a smile on his face, always laughed. I, I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to handle all of that, but it ended up being probably the best 72 hours that I could have asked for because I got to go in and hold his hand and, and talk to him and say things that, you know, a sister usually doesn't say to their brother, you know, and I think that it changed my whole perspective on, on life and, and all of that, because I was able to say goodbye to my brother and without organ donation, I would not have had that opportunity. And so to, to know that Brian, you know, in some way was looking out for our family by making his decision to, to be an organ donor, we all know what it does for the recipients. We all know what it does for their families, but it really saved our family as a whole. Wow, that is a, a really powerful story, and quite frankly, one I think that uh, most of our viewers probably wouldn't expect to hear. I know when you you first said 
72 hours, my first reaction was, wow, that's that's got to be a really tough experience to have. You're dealing with all this grief and all these emotions and stuff. And closure is always something people talk about when they talk about grief. And to have that period seems like it could be really difficult, but it sounds like you guys made the best of it. Yeah. And with Brian being a, a public figure and, and sports figure in the racing community, you know, we had to, to grieve very publicly. And that was a hard thing to have to do. I remember we were sitting there and it was just our family that knew that he was an organ donor and we had to write a statement for, I think the Indianapolis Motor Speedway put it out um, for us about Brian dying and nobody knew that he was an organ donor at that point. And so, you know, it's, it's almost like we got to, to live that little piece of it to ourselves. And I think that private moment to be able to celebrate the fact that he was an organ donor was incredible. And, you know, it, it's hard to grieve any loss. But having to do that in such a public way was was extremely difficult. Right. I, I can only imagine how, how hard that must have been for you guys. I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about what it's like to be a family member of a donor. I always used to joke with my brother. People would call me all the time and be like, you're Brian Clawson's little sister, right? Um, and I would always hate that. I would always hate to be referred to as that because as I was growing up, you know, I was coming into my own my own person and I just wanted to be known by who I was and not mm. who Brian was. And ever since August 7th of 2016, you know, my entire perspective has changed. I'm so proud to be Brian Clawson's little sister. I'm so proud to continue, you know, on in his honor. And I, I love being referred to as that now. And so, you know, it, it's a really hard thing to sit in a hospital and, and say goodbye to your, to your family member. But at the same time for him to be able to help so, save so many people. And like I said, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing that, you know, he saved other people's lives, but those 72 hours that he gave our family was everything that we needed to be able to continue on. And so, you know, I'm very proud to be Brian Clawson's little sister and, it's really, I think donor families are especially put in a hard place because, you know, all the focus is on, you know, their recipients and, and mm -hmm. the life that they give. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, great. But at the same time, you know, these are heroes. These are people who did this wonderful thing, made a wonderful decision. And I think that that should be celebrated as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's one we've heard from our panel as well earlier today is that um, I think a lot of the times when we talk about organ donors, it's always important to remember that th that organ donor is a person. And like you said, they're a hero and they're mm -hmm. really doing something admirable. Um, so I think it's great to keep the kind of, um, you know, human aspect of this. I was wondering if you could also tell us a little bit about what made you decide to get kind of professionally involved in organ donation? Was that something that kind of happened in those 72 hours? Did it take a little bit of time for you to really um, get invested kind of professionally in this? My whole family really just got very passionate about donation after our experience with Brian. And we kept getting, you know, different fans and, and different people in the racing community asking how they could help. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that we knew that they could do was just to sign up to be an organ donor. It's, it's an easy thing to do and to do it in Brian's honor is incredible. And so, you know, we talked to Donate Life America and asked them if we could set up a registry on their page and track how many people would register and and all of that and so i think within i think it was like 48 hours we there was like 5000 people that had registered wow. and, um it was insane and so i think just all of that kind of culminated into me wanting to live my every single day you know be able to honor brian and so more had a conversation with indiana donor network as you know 
to how they could help with grief resources and things like that. And then that kind of just snowballed into a professional career. And I don't think that it was something that I was planning on doing, but to get to honor my brother every day, you know, makes everything that I do worth it. Taylor, I was also wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the program you work for, uh, Driven to Save Lives. Can you tell us what all that's about? Yeah, so um, Driven to Save Lives is something that was started in 2016 around the Indianapolis 500 after Justin Wilson passed away. Um, He was an organ donor and saved five lives as well. Uh, His brother, Stefan, wanted to honor him at the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500. And so Indiana Donor Network created the campaign kind of around that. And then after Brian died, we kind of took that and morphed it into what it is today. We go to dirt track races all across Indiana and raise awareness for organ donation with race fans. Um, And we really just use it as a platform to be able to talk to the racing community about organ donation because it's not really something that um, within racing that you talk about a lot. It's a very dangerous sport, and I don't think people really like to talk about um, those types of things. But the outreach and support that we've gotten from the racing community has been incredible. We've registered thousands of race fans through Driven to Save Lives. We've heard stories from donor families and recipients who have said that, you know, Driven to Save Lives is the reason that they're able to share their stories now. And we are currently at Postal Oklahoma for the Chili Bowl um, Midget Nationals, which is a huge race. And um, we have Ryan Newman driving the Driven to Save Lives car. He's actually carrying the name Cage Fry, who was an organ donor who died a few months ago. And so to be able to give back to families within the racing community through Driven to Save Lives, it it kind of brings it all full circle for me. Yeah, it's a really powerful story. And it's just uh, very impressive the way you and your family have been able to suffer through this tragedy, but then also really turn it into something good for not just your family, but the the public. It's, uh, It's really powerful. I was wondering also if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, if, if somebody's listening to this podcast and they, they hear your story and uh, they want to help out, mm-hmm. what are some ways that they can get involved? Yeah, so there's um, a lot of ways to get involved, but I think the biggest thing is just signing up to be an organ donor. Make sure you register and go online. You can do that at the BMV. You can do it through uh, DonateLifeIndiana.org. You can do it through DrivenToSaveLives.org. So it's really easy. It takes less than 30 seconds. If you want to get involved in programs, become an advocate for us. That's something that we need as well. Go out within the community and talk about organ donation. There's information about that on our website as well. Great. That sounds good. It sounds like there's a lot of options to get involved, whether it's just being a donor or if you, you know, want to get a little bit more involved, there's opportunities to do that as well. Taylor, you are amazing. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. Organ donation can be an awkward and uncomfortable topic to discuss, but it can also bring hope to tragedy. It's the ultimate gift. Today, over 113,000 people are on the transplant list. While 95% of all Americans support organ donation, only 52% are actually designated donors. So have the conversation with your family, express your wishes, and understand the wishes of those you love. For more information on organ donation, contact the Indiana Donor Network at indianadonornetwork.org. Safe Tea is brought to you by Rachel's First Week. Executive producer, Mike Wilson from Airborne. Sound engineer, Ben Vauder. And a very special thanks to American Medical Response, NASCAR, and Healthcare Initiatives for their financial support of this podcast. Visit us on Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter at hashtag Rachel's First Week. Don't forget the A in Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. 
We want to hear from you, so contact us at rachelsfirstweek.org. Don't forget to subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Safe Teeth. This is Georgia signing off. See you next time.